Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 107 of Real Blend, a podcast that worships whatever the hell Woody Harrelson is doing in Venom 2. Please tell me you guys saw those photos. They are exquisite. Exquisite. I love everything about them. Why? Because, dude, he looks like everything that I want bad Woody Harrelson in awful Venom but that, 2 to be. <laughs> but, that, but all that's going to mean is that the movie's going to be bad. And it's already the sequel to a bad movie. Like, why are well, you happy about this? I'm a little bit but okay it, with that. I like the first Venom. You did like Yeah, well, you know. That was fun. Yes, he yeah. did. All right, anyway, let's get through this week's episode uh, on today's show. The Invisible Man will hit theaters this week, and we're going to have spoiler-free reviews. They better be spoiler-free because I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go see it in a few hours. Uh, Kevin also was able to sit down with writer-director Lee Wanell and has an amazing conversation uh, with him about Invisible Man and his career in general. Um, so without further ado, let me quickly introduce the guy. Oh, I always see I get right to introduce the guys and I forget to introduce myself. My name is Sean O'Connell. <laughs> I am the managing director here at Cinema Blend, the president of the Cletus Cassidy fan club. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm joined, as always, by Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. I'm doing well, my friend. I got a, just a quick, quick, quick apology um, to oh. you. Because I I sat down with Kevin McCarthy in New York last week, who yes. in the most brief uh, uh, Cliff Notes version possible, oh. <laughs> told me about one scene from Human Centipede Three, mm. and I gotta be honest with you, I feel kind of bad. Dude, like you not should. You, you not really should all the way, <laughs> but. I, and I also have so much respect for both of you for watching the entire thing because <laughs> I would have hit that point, yeah, and and, and stopped. Right. And and so for that, I, ap- I apologize with a smirk. I Off guess. air. Oh, actually, Kevin, just text me the scene. I just I need to know what the scene is. So the, the other- one I told him about. Yeah, I want oh, you to text I, me. I, I can keep it in one sentence. It was just the scene that uh, with the removal of a of a of a private part matter of someone's body. Oh, that wasn't even the worst. That, that wasn't even it for me. I would have guessed a different one. Oh no, I, I gave him the G rated scene. He he has yeah. no idea what else we've been we've been oh, through. Oh, Jake, has- that was nothing. That's yeah, like, you know what? Pick park. better Oscar choices next year. <laughs> anyway, yes, the Sean, other person. Yes, you and I, at, we were going to have our revenge. It's a badge it, of honor, though, it Kevin. Will, it, it will happen. Our I'm revenge. I'm proud of will, the two of us. <laughs> me too. Yes, uh, that other voice, obviously, Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington D.C. Hi, Kevin. Sean, good to talk to you. Jake, good to talk to you. Gabe, My good man. to see you as always. Uh, and and regarding the Venom, I thought the Venom, the cool thing about Venom to me was was uh, Hardy's relationship with the character. I thought that part was cool, but I understand why people didn't love it. I think Andy Serkis can explore more of that. So anyway, plugs for this week. Um, A reminder for everybody that we have a community page over on Facebook. What are you looking all baffled about? What? Because you, you're talking about him like he's Spielberg. What he's what has he done that's proven himself as a director? Like, anyway. oh, oh, the the acclaimed director Andy Serkis. Like, what? What he did one Jungle Book movie that nobody saw. Like, what? What he? Like, what? Like, what? What, what has he done that's given you hope you're that so he's going to save Venom? You're so, you're so angry Cause, today. Cause you're all excited Don't even over like a movies. It's going to be crap. Do you remember Bradley Bradley Cooper's directorial debut? Wait, Starsborn? Yeah. Yeah, pretty, no. Was, people can come out the gate and do good stuff. It's pretty good. Yes, but Andy Serkis already came out the gate. He's out the gate. Yes, we're moving on. All right, plugs. The uh, community page over on Facebook. We're, we're getting Sean all disheveled. This is a place where you can go and have conversations about whether Andy Serkis is a good director or whether you like Woody Harrelson and what he's trying to do in uh, Venom 2 as Carnage. Head over to Facebook and search for these words, Real Blend 
podcast community. They do an amazing job every single day of posting uh, really fun content, polls that people can participate in, uh, questions that I actually want to start bringing over to the show. Some really interesting things of like, which directors had the best uh, three movie run? I saw somebody post uh, recently and started to think about it Ooh. and wanted to maybe bring that conversation over to the show. So that was a really good one. Also, in addition, um, if you guys like to watch podcasts on YouTube, uh, we are running streams, our full episodes on Cinema Blend's YouTube page. Um, not that it's like the live element, Gabe, I want to bring the live element back. Like not the live element, but like the visual. Oh, Jake and Gabe are both <laughs> No, they're shouting that down in I, real time. I live enough of my life live yeah. on the air as it is. I I enjoy knowing that I can but do something and go Jake, back. And you're so handsome, though. Like if I, I would, I would Truman show my life if I looked like Jake Hamilton. <laughs> for God's sakes, <laughs> I would welcome everyone to come watch me do everything that I was doing. Okay, uh, and of course, we're available on all your favorite podcast apps as well, too. I want to throw out um, the fact that I totally botched. Uh, the weekly poll and didn't put it up last week. We came up with a topic. Uh, we even came up with options and then uh, I just didn't post it. Um, so that's totally my fault. And then uh, Gabe reminded me today and I didn't even remember what the poll was. So instead, I'm going to take this time to plug the fact that uh, over on Cinema Blend's YouTube page, you can watch me react to season one of Westworld. And uh, Jake, I know you're watching them. Jake texts me yeah. um, when he's catching I watch him at the gym. Reactions. Kevin, are you finally going to dive into Westworld? Uh, I, I want to watch Westworld, but I have to watch Saul season five first. I have to watch Watchmen and I have to watch Hunters. So I have a lot of stuff I got to watch. Oh my gosh. Um, See, yeah. when, when you're like me and you're not married and you don't have kids, you get to <laughs> fill that giant void in your heart with television. <laughs> yeah, I, I, will, I will give Sean a pass on his weekly poll mess up um, oh. because uh, Thank when, you. That, when that Ben Affleck Snyder cut news hit last week i would imagine Dude. your mo- your mind was just in a billion places so i'm gonna go ahead and just for gabe and jake and myself i'm gonna give you a pass on that poll props to thank cinema you. blend for that <clears throat> scoop thank you i appreciate that props to mike reyes mike, mike reyes, reyes baby yeah that was really good and we even i'll even tell you guys something a little subtle that we did uh and i told this to jake kevin but you might appreciate this as well too this is a good chance for you to get it. Um, see, a lot of times we go into these opportunities looking for scoops specifically. And the, and Kevin, you and I had this conversation, too, about uh, ways to phrase certain questions. And Kevin does a really great job of looking ahead to what the answer is probably going to be. So the way that we got Ben Affleck to talk about that was not to ask him about the Snyder Cut, but to just thank him for posting the hashtag on November 17th. Like, hey, man, thanks so much for posting that. It meant a lot to the movement in hopes that he would take the baton and run with it. But then what I came up with, this is very strategic, and I'm giving this away on a podcast, so anyone else can use it for future things, I guess, is Mike was running audio on his phone uh, and did it during the icebreaker when he was sitting down in the chair. So it didn't have to get picked up on on the card. You know, it could just be part of the did conversation. I uh, haven't even looked to see if it got there yet. But I don't know. All so I you could, was you could have video of this and you don't even... Yeah, I could actually have video of this and not even know, but you probably do. Sly, I was very proud of the way that that all turned out. Well junket done. tricks, little junket, junket tricks. tricks. So anyway, uh, this week opening uh, in theaters is The Invisible Man. A um, <laughs> it's funny. A while ago, it was supposed to be a continuation of the Dark Universe, uh, and for a while had Johnny Depp 
uh, casting it. But um, then I think they just completely started from scratch, like t- tore it down to the to the um, studs. That's the phrase I was looking for, and and built it up all over again with a brand new director, Lee Wanell, who had pre- uh, previously directed Upgrade and was a co-creator of the Saw franchise with James Wan. He's come a long way, uh, branched out to become a director, and is now coming to theaters with The Invisible Man. Kevin, you want to set up the interview? How did you uh, how did you get him, and uh, and how did it go? Well, I mean, for me. Uh, the Invisible Man was a movie that I was I, I was hesitant about because I was like, I, I, the story is one we've seen before. The idea of the Invisible Man, the um, Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon, uh, you know, H.G. Wells. I mean, this is a very classic. Hollow Man's a good movie, by the way. I don't I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember disliking Hollow Man, to be honest. But yeah. um, but but going into this film, I wasn't really I didn't know what to take away from it. And as I sat down in the theater and the movie opens. Uh, with some of the coolest title card sequences I've seen, and uh, and for a budget of seven million dollars, I just don't really understand how the film was made. And even though in this interview you're about to hear Lee Winnell breaks down a lot of the filmmaking, I still don't really understand. I think what the, what makes me scared about this film the most is the technology used within the world of the movie to explain the Invisible Man is not too far off from what we might be able to experience some point in our lifetime and that's what makes it so scary is because if it's if it can be possible and it can be real you imagine what you would be like in that situation that's what makes it so freakish so um i want to thank lee for doing this interview uh he's actually the one of the people who actually made it happen because i had met him when i interviewed him for upgrade upgrade is a masterpiece of an action film if you haven't seen it uh, i rewatched it recently it is so good for three million dollars so here is Lee Winnell, the director of The Invisible Man, and seriously one of the scariest films I've seen in a long time. Listen to this. So Do you think a, a full color version of that scene would have got him an NC-17? 100%. Yeah, that's why. Isn't that why uh, Scorsese's blood and taxi driver is a little more on the orange side? Yeah, there's a, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. That's why I've always found so interesting about movies. Yeah. But, All right. No, it's good. This is why it's good to... You're lucky last today, so let's, 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 let's get in there. and uh, pop this on. It's funny, like, just before you sat down, Matt Reeves just put out the freaking Batman test, camera test with, with uh, patents. It looks no, cool. you got to let me look at it. Oh, you got to look at it then. Okay. We, should, we should react to it. In yeah, the exactly. To put it on. Right. Well, you can start and say, Lee's just checking out. All right. So uh, we are here in L.A., uh, we're talking about The Invisible Man. Before we start this interview, though, uh, since Matt Reeves did release the uh, Batman test footage, Lee's going to check it out right now. Okay, I've, 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 I've Googled Batman go test to, footage. Uh, go to the um, Batman costume reveal. That's it. Dude, it's got to be it. It's awesome, man. Shout out to Slash Film. Yeah. Uh, it okay, should... come on. The footage is unreal. You know good. what's going to happen? This is going to make terrible radio because my phone there is going to be... Wait, there's the video. Is there a Vimeo? There's a video. Here's a video. Guys, this makes for riveting podcasts. (laughs) Listening to us watch something. You got to go full screen, man. You're right. What am I doing? I don't know if this is Giacchino's music. What? Go away. Hang on. We're seeing something. Now, it's it's a Batman costume. It's coming slowly into focus. I guess they're going to use that as a batarang. Oh wow! Okay, Off so it, his chest. interesting. It's kind of an interesting idea. It almost looks like armor. I'm trying to figure out if this is Jaquino's score or is this like temp stuff? I don't, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know. I don't know. It's a ballsy move to kind of put music on it because the thing is, people will get married to it. That's what I'm wondering. Like, and, and that. Yeah. 
Okay, wow, okay, cool. You, it's funny, like... I'm all in, man. I, I remember um, my daughter was watching that film. I think it's the feature film, Teen Titans. It's the, it's the Teen Titans feature film. Um, and, and there's this great joke in it where they pull up to a movie premiere and the name of the movie is Batman again. <laughs> and, like, I thought it was a great inside baseball joke, but... I have to admit, no matter how many Batman movies they make, I'm always interested. Dude. And that doesn't happen for every hero. No. Like, you get fatigued. But with Batman, for some reason, the, the fatigue doesn't set in with Batman. Did you like Affleck's Batman? I love Affleck's Batman. I did, I did. I thought that um, there was some elements of it when they first introduced him that I thought were really cool, like when he was breaking up that kind of... Um, Child slavery ring, that whole scene yes. in, the, in the house, the warehouse. Yeah, the warehouse. Oh, like it was just God. Um, Snyder. Man. But um, it, 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 the problem, the issue that I had is that he wasn't the complete star. Like I'm, I'm like, okay, just give me a Batman. We movie. never had a Batman movie with Affleck. It yeah, was I know. Like it was always like he's free. a supporting character with someone else. Yeah. As well, I mean, honestly, this and then we'll transition in, but only because we just watched it. But as a filmmaker, and you've been working in this business for a long time, what are your thoughts on this whole release, the Snyder cut? Movement, like the idea of a filmmaker possibly having another cut of his film, like, like I mean, did, as a director, does that seem completely insane to you? Or like, I mean, it, it, to me, I never want to have another cut sitting somewhere that that competes with the original cut. But I he mean, rolled out. Remember, they brought Whedon in to finish the right, movie. right. But I guess what I'm saying is. Whatever circumstances created that cut, whatever horrible circumstances are totally understandable. For me, for me personally, I would always, I would always view it as a terrible thing that there was an unseen cut of the film. Yeah. And I try to, um, you know, over the years you'll see this thing where it's like uh, James Cameron re-releases the director's cut of Aliens, yeah. and then he'll introduce it. When you watch the movie, he comes on the screen and he says, this is the way I always intended people to watch Aliens. And my first thought is, that's nuts. Like, don't have one definitive version of the movie. Yeah. Don't, don't, I, I hate this idea that we missed out on the version he wanted us to see. But Blade Runner's an interesting story because Ridley clearly didn't want to right. have a voiceover was, in there, right? And that's the situation yeah. That's the situation I'm saying would be a nightmare, would be someone forcibly changing a film that I had made uh, to such a degree that I felt the version out there was not the true version. That is a living nightmare that I, ne- that I don't want to live. I, maybe I'll go through it one day. Have you ever been pressured to change something in one of your films against what you wanted to do? Like, like I would imagine when the Saw stuff was happening and like, like that stuff was brutal. And I would imagine like the MPA had... I, I mean, know, it was very issues. minor notes. You have to remember Saw was an independent film. So um, there was no sense that... Uh, Creative control was being taken away from James Wan and I. There was no sense that we were being micromanaged. I mean, we made that film for like eighteen bucks, <laughs> some glue and some spit. Like it was, it was. If you can't have con- creative control on a film that cheap, then you don't have much. Yeah. You know, the trade-off you make is that when you make a blockbuster, you have all this money, you have all these toys, but you have a lot of opinions. Um, did that? Did those opinions start coming in on two, three? Like as the as they got more popular? Not really. I mean, not really because we were seen as the authority, and it, it's almost this mm. thing of like, get out of their way. Don't don't annoy the golden goose. You know, keep them happy, feed them, 
and keep them pumping this thing out. And so I, I wrote two of the sequels before I stepped away. And um, so you're responsible for the needle scene, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, the needle yeah. pit was a low point. Probably one of the most horrifying. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> that will always be with me, though. Well, yeah, that will always. You got to understand, you know, when you're writing a saw film, that counts as a great day's work. <laughs> you're like, yes, I did it. Yeah. I came up with something that'll, you know, make the audience physically ill. Yeah. But um, one of the reasons I had to step away from the saw films, I felt, is that. I couldn't think up any more ways to creatively kill somebody or right. dismember them. I was like, you know, I'm burned out on this. And, you know, they kept going and making those movies, but I just kind of had to step away. What did you think of the, that trailer with Chris Rock and Sam Jackson? Is that, did you guys have any insight into that? Is that, is that- We weren't a part of it. Like uh, James Wan, uh, who directed the original Soul film, obviously, and myself, we've really stepped away from the um, Saw films. It's a strange feeling of divorce because... This is something we created. Yeah. We brought it over from Australia to the US and, you know, inadvertently kickstarted this franchise and now we don't have anything to do with it. So it's like... Was it weird watching the trailer? Did you know anything about it? Did you? I did. I, I knew about it. I hadn't uh, read the screenplay, but I was intrigued by the Chris Rock angle because it's such a, such a weird angle to take. I mean, this is, this is not someone who's known for this type of film and... It's intriguing to me. It's funny because uh, when I directed the third Insidious films, that was my directorial debut, and uh, they put me in one of those lists, you know, Variety Magazines, 10 directors to watch. (laughs) And I go to this party in Palm Springs, you know, these parties that they throw, and and, um, it it was Variety Magazine throwing a party for their directors to watch. And as I'm walking in, my agent, much to my horror says to me, hey, I should introduce you to Chris Rock. And before I know what's happening, he, like, pushes me towards Chris Rock. Wow. And and I said something lame, like, uh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> and uh, he said, ah, oh, thanks, and then walked away. And as he was walking away, his agent said to him, you know, this guy wrote Saw. And he just did a complete stop, 180, came back and was so interested and was like, you wrote Saw? Do you think he was already... Yeah. Thinking about it? He said Wait, to me... When was it, this? This, this was... Insidious was, was 3 was, what, three, four years ago? So it's 2014. Wow. It came out in 2015, so it would have been early 2015. And he said to me, I'm a big fan of Saw, and I've always wanted to write a Saw film. And I thought he was just doing one of those things you do at parties when you say, hey, big fan of your podcast, yeah. I'd love to be a guest. And then you, you never follow up on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, I thought he was just bullshitting me. <laughs> Turns out Chris Rock wasn't joking. Wow. Um, so the first thing I thought of when I heard that Chris was doing this film was uh, I thought of that moment at that party. And, just, and, and I thought how if I had known how serious he was, I probably would have said to him, well, we should spend some time together hanging out and I'll help you write that film (laughs) because I want to hang out with Chris Rock. Would you have been involved if he had said, can you come? I mean, obviously you're making Invisible Man, which we'll get into, which is the reason why you're here, but... Is that something you would have been like, would you, or were you so detached from Saw by that point? I feel, kind yeah, of I do it? feel like it's best to move on. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm entering this kind of new fr- phase of my creative life where I'm writing these films and directing them, and, and I'm kind of building something. You know, when I look at Upgrade and The Invisible Man, they feel like companion pieces in certain ways. Yep. And, and you know, that's, that's what you do, I guess, as a, as a director. Uh, you, you try to build a body of work. You know, if you, if you take someone like Chris Nolan and you look at his last 20 years of films, 
there is a, there's a symmetry there and there's a through line and there's themes that he comes back to and there's a look that it, 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 it'll all make sense, you know, at the, at the end of his career, whenever that is, there'll be this body of work um, that, that all links together somehow. Um, That's important to you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's cool. The filmmakers that I admire, they have that. You know, I've seen lately, with the release of The Irishman, I've seen a lot of retrospective pieces about Scorsese's career. Yeah. I think people are aware that he's he's getting older, he's maybe coming towards the end of his career. You know, hopefully he does get to make many more films, but I'm seeing these pieces and holding a mirror up to this decades-long career. And it's fascinating because there are these through lines and these 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 commonalities with all of them. It doesn't matter if he's making a film about, you know, uh, Howard Hughes or even uh, Hugo, a Tibetan still monk. Had his yeah, voice, Hugo, you know? exactly. Though, and that was not any. That's my favorite Scorsese movie, which is strange. Is that true? Wow. I, I didn't know the classics. You would probably go with like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and Mean Streets. But I, I would say I would say Goodfellas for me is to, to me it's it, it's 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 my favorite of his movies for many reasons, but. But I agree with you that Hugo... It was a love letter to filmmaking. Yeah, Hugo yeah. totally yeah. totally speaks to his obsessions. And, and, and I guess that's the dream, is to build a body of work that, that fits together, you know? You know, you mentioned Upgrade leading into Invisible Man, and our co-host Sean was texting me this morning, he was like, ask Lee about what Upgrade gave you freedom-wise to build mm. into Invisible Man. And you, you think about, I mean, there are shots in this film that I think are, those are Lee shots. Like, like right, yeah. your voice the is The stunt there. team would actually call them Winnells. <laughs> they would say like, oh, this, we got this Winnell coming up yeah. where the camera was actually locked to the actors. Did and, you, did you, now, and Upgrade, you had iPhone shots. Did you, yeah. did you throw some iPhone Actually, we went a bit uh, we went a bit uh, upmarket with this one. <laughs> we got a motion control camera, which is essentially a robot. It's really funny when you when you direct with a motion control camera. It's kind of similar to dance choreography. It's all about timing. You know, if you if you have a human cameraman, they can improvise. They adjust. You know, if an actor makes a split second decision in the moment to sit down then uh, a, 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 a living camera operator can move down and accommodate that. Well, a robot has no such time. A robot does only what it's programmed to do. So you have this timing. You can't even use the sound when you're shooting motion control because all you can hear is this voice booming across the so set. You have the ADR, that stuff? It's, it's, yeah, you have to redo everything because on the set, what you hear is this voice saying and one and two and three and four that's how the actors learn where they need to be they they know that on five they need to be over at that table and so because the camera is going there and it moves really quickly and precisely like it'll take your head off if you look like for for my audience like like, is it it on a track is it like is is it physically like it almost looks like do you remember the opening scene of alien yeah where her uh her little uh escape pod ship gets sucked into that big thing and this laser cuts open the door and this thing comes through the door and starts scanning for life it looks like that really yeah and it it moves very quickly like if everyone has to be very conscious of it because it will take your head off it's a very expensive piece of equipment and it makes these precise moves Uh, apparently I heard David Fincher loves shooting with it because it's so precise and he Mm. wants that clean clinical move um you know uh and and so shooting those scenes, these fight scenes, you know, it felt like a more expensive version of what we were doing with Upgrade. Up, Upgrade felt like the punk version of like, 
yeah, let's strap an iPhone to this actor and see what happens. Yeah. Whereas this movie was like a long rehearsal period, getting used to the idea of this motion control camera um, and also a lot of takes because, you know, I stupidly decided I want to do it all in one shot. So there were certain scenes in the movie where the motion control camera would be moving for a long time and all you need is for Elizabeth to miss her mark once and we have to go back to the start. How long is that shot in the kitchen? Um, you know what? We've never timed it. I think it's about... There's actually a cut in there. Yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. like it. There you is a cut. You can't see it, though. It's hard to spot, but um, I'd say it's about, like, maybe... A little under two minutes. It's I think an from start sequence. to. I'm, I'm glad you like it. It's it's funny because you're talking to me so close to the end of the movie. Yeah. Usually, when I finish a movie, there's this decompression period of a few months, and then after a few months, suddenly you'll start hearing about a press plan and a publicity, and it starts ramping up. And I mean, I've had movies released a year after I finished them. Wow. So that's a whole year of moving on, doing other things before you're dealing with it. This movie has been a strange experience because I'm doing interviews with people like yourself right after I finished it. It'd be, it, it's almost like I was just in a car crash. I've gotten out of the car and you've shoved a microphone in my face and said, tell me what it's like to be in a car crash. You know, I'm like, give me a couple of months to, you know, yeah. to, to I mean, sort it's of. It's good that you haven't had time to process it. Yeah, maybe. Tell me, if I'm, is it really $7 million? to make this movie. Is that true? Yeah, American, yeah. We went to Australia, so what happens awesome. is you, you grow the money there. The, <laughs> the, 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 the exchange rate will add some money and then there's soft money that comes in from the government. Um, there's tax incentives that Australia offers. So basically, you, you can turn 7 million American into 14 million Australian. So shooting in Australia... Um, all of a sudden you, you have a better budget. That's the reason why producers want to shoot in these other countries. Yeah. It's because of that extra money. Uh, so Australia, for me, on a budgetary level, makes a lot of sense. Well, um, people are going to see this and not believe it only costs $7 million. Really? It's, not, it's, it's, it, it's truly amazing. And, and I do, uh, eventually in this, uh, in this interview, I want to I kind of break down a scene with you because mm-hmm. I, I'm really into like, the way filmmaking is, and we won't go, well, this is just one kitchen scene, but I want to get mm-hmm. to that shortly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, I was talking to my co-host today about this, and we know that there, there was the dark universe that Universal mm-hmm. was building for a while, and then we had the Mummy film come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, critically, it wasn't well received. I don't mm-hmm. think it did well enough that they wanted to continue with it. Right. Was there ever a version of this story where Depp was your lead and was it was it different at all? Were you even attached at that point? No, it was weird. This film came about in a really random way. Uh, it, it wasn't like I was um, plugged into some world building. Uh, it was, it was I just finished Upgrade. Um, they called me in for a meeting with some of these Universal execs and the Blumhouse execs. I thought for sure that we were going to talk about Upgrade because I had just finished that. And, you know, Blumhouse with the studio that made Upgrade, Universal was involved. So it made sense to me that it was going to be this big conversation and I was sort of um, in this mindset that I'm in now with you. I was very raw about the movie. I'd just finished it. I was nervous about what the world would think of this movie. So I go to this meeting and they, they didn't really talk about Upgrade. I mean, they, they said they liked it and then they moved on. Huh. And so I was sitting on a couch just like this one and I'm thinking, you know, what, what am I here for? What is this meeting about? And they started talking about The Invisible Man. And uh, I just thought it was kind of a non secateur. Like, you know, what would you do with this character? Had you ever expressed interest in this no, property? No, never. I mean, I, obviously I'm so, aware of yeah, the character, of course, but I yeah. n- never thought about that character in any way. Wasn't pursuing it. So didn't have a burning desire. 
it was just brought up to me and I think there's something to be said for a lack of fear. I always think of that movie Office Space, that classic thing where when he stops giving a shit, everything goes right. You know, they call him in for the job performance review and they're like, what do you do here? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> and instead of saying you're fired, they're like, that's exactly the attitude we need. You know, it's that counterintuitive. I kind of felt like there's a freedom in that. So because I didn't care or wasn't needy of this Invisible Man character... I was blurting out these ideas. You know, they said, well, what would you do with it? And I offhandedly said, you know, well, um, I would probably tell the story from the point of view of the victim, maybe a woman who's escaping a relationship and yeah. suddenly she finds out that this abusive ex of hers is much closer than she thought. That came out of just nowhere. Just right there on that couch. Wow. And, uh, and you know, I, I, and I, I don't want to paint it in terms of this, this bolt of the, out sure. of the blue, a, a stroke of genius. It was more like that's what seemed obvious to me and... And there was none of that neediness. I wasn't going in there, palm sweating, begging for a job. Obviously, many times as a writer, you go into a room trying to convince somebody, I'm the guy to write this movie. This was the opposite. This was them suggesting something to me and me throwing something out there. When I walked out of the room, I still didn't have any inclination or inkling that I would end up doing this movie. But a couple of days later... I started getting these phone calls, you know, from the guys at Blumhouse and Universal saying, we really liked that direction that you came up with. And I was thinking, God, that was just, you know, that was just an improvisation. <laughs> That's a, you know, uh, and then... Where's Dark Universe at this point? It hasn't been mentioned. That- so The Mummy had come out. This was in... Okay. This was in... Um, gosh, this must have been... When did Upgrade come out? This must have been like... Uh, mid 2018. So there's no mention in the meeting about like this being a connected universe. No, interesting. Nothing. Interesting. And it was only ever treated as a standalone film. And at a certain point, I was made aware of this dark universe. Um, people would tell me about it when I would tell them I was doing the Invisible Man. They would ask me about this this universe, and I I started to sneak around a little bit, like a like I'd gotten into a party I wasn't invited to and didn't want to draw attention to myself in case someone said, hey, what are you doing here? Mm. So I was just like, don't mention the war, don't mention the war. And at no stage did someone call me and say, hey, by the way, we'd love it if we could have a cameo from Dr. Jekyll in the movie mm. or uh, we'd love you to come in and look at some of our plans. It was, it was only ever treated by Universal as a standalone film and they were so supportive of it. Um, and, and had a lot of great ideas. Like, you know, these people are really smart people, so a lot of the notes I was getting from them were just helping the film. So, but Depp was never involved in your version? No. Wow, that's so interesting to me. Yeah, I like, mean, I, I guess it was, yeah. I guess it was uh, a direction that they put a lot of money and resources, resources into at one time. Yeah. Didn't work out the way they wanted. They, they, the, the thing is, in the movie business... There's, what, there's what's being said and there's what's really going right. on. Right. So yeah. now with hindsight, I realise that, of course, this was a big meeting that was had before I was ever in the room yeah. between Jason Blum and Universal where they said, you know, how about Lee Winnell for one of these characters? He'd be great for The Invisible Man. And so it was an ambush that you walk into. But I'm such a doe-eyed fawn in the crosshairs of a rifle that I just, I just sit there and fall right into their trap. Um, you know, they Jedi mind-tricked me into thinking that it was my idea. It was literally like Obi-Wan waving his hand and saying, this is the movie you want to make. I walked out of there being like, well, damn right I want to make that film. Um, but I, I loved the experience, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad they, 
they they tricked me into making it because I just I had a really rewarding film experience. Yeah. You know, what's terrifying about this film is how close to reality it appears mm. to be, and it's like one of those weird things where as you watch it, you go, okay. That is extreme, but for some reason I could believe that that could really happen. Like the idea of holograms and light and reflection. Um, the science behind the concept of what mm-hmm. the suit is mm-hmm. is truly insane to me. I was reading <laughs> the production notes about it, about how there were the backwards cameras are actually the front-facing hologram. Can mm-hmm. you give our audience like a basic <laughs> rundown of the science of kind of? And I understand that this is like a futuristic thing that that this right. would be trillions of dollars to pull off uh, in mm-hmm. reality. But what is the science behind how that suit would work? I mean, for me, uh, it's all about. Um, it's projection. It's um, it's it's cameras mapping any room that you walk into and taking thousands and thousands of photographs per minute, and then projecting each image so that wherever you move, you're changing the perspective. I talked to some scientists, and it's it's t- and they said it was plausible and possible. You know, if you had the right tech, and you could figure it out, it's it's amazing what cameras can do. And to be honest. I don't think that we're that far away. No. I don't think there's that much of a bridge between an app on your phone that can change the look of your face or aid you or erase objects from a room and being able to do this. So that's that's what I really felt was freeing about this movie was using tech to ground it. I wanted to make it very grounded, realistic. Uh, I wanted to get away from the idea of a serum or a potion, yeah. you know, these more gothic retro ideas um, but it makes it more terrifying when it's real. That's, yeah, exactly. That's I mean, what I think makes the movie so freaking scary is like that, that it could really happen. Yeah, that's I, I needed <laughs> that. I, I wanted that for this movie is I was like, how do I make a movie that feels realistic when it's titled The Invisible Man? Mm. You know, um, um, it, it's like sitting there and saying, okay, I've got a movie here called Attack of the Martians but I need it to feel completely grounded and real. Like, how do you take those ideas Uh, And it's all about the execution. Like, first of all, you have to just treat it at face value. Like, this is real. But second of all, you have to have all the ideas grounded in some some basis of real science. You know, it's all about research as well. I did plenty of research on this stuff. Um, And I think tech was my best friend because, you know, I grew up on movies that were filled with these sci-fi concepts that are now just part of our everyday life. Yeah. You know, we all thought it was crazy that he could talk to his wife over a video phone in Total Recall. You know, yeah, yeah. when I went to see that movie, now, you know, my daughter thinks nothing of FaceTiming her grandmother. Total Recall FaceTime. Oh Remember my that? God. And, and you, by the way, if you go back and watch that movie, their version of it, it wouldn't pass muster today. Like, people would be like, what is this clunky device? Like, what used to be... I, I feel like you could start a whole other podcast called, you know... 80s sci-fi concepts that are now just common yeah. and just just totally dissect like oh remember when that was trippy like being able to talk to your phone you know it, it's just it's ridiculous and and that ends up becoming your friend when you're writing a film uh, uh, inflected with science fiction it's it's because it's because um you can you can connect the audiences perception to your movie very quickly because they're so used to this tech in their everyday lives. So I want to I walk through the kitchen scene. And mm-hmm. I know we did this briefly in the TV interview yesterday, mm-hmm. but I just, 
unless I don't want to give too much away. Like this podcast is a director's podcast, so we're right. we we our our listeners love to know the filmmaking because in our in my opinion, I think knowing things can actually enhance the experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if a filmmaker does it well, which you do. Yeah. But that kitchen scene is the first kind of time where she really has a genuine yeah. interaction and fight with yeah. the Invisible Man. Yeah. Um, it's truly amazing. It's one shot, as you mentioned. There's a stitch in there, but uh, but. She gets lifted off the ground, pushed into a wall, thrown over a table. Mm-hmm. On set, can you walk me through it, since it is in the trailer, what that took to pull off? Like, it, it, right. <laughs> how are you lifting her off the ground? How are you throwing her? I mean, we're not seeing anything. And then the budget, it doesn't make any sense how the hell you did it. So I'm just curious, like, it's, you walk us through it. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of meetings. You know, films are mostly planning. It's like... It's a long conversation for a short execution. Mm. Um, you know, you have weeks of chats and then you have to shoot it all in a day. So it's really... You didn't do that scene in a day. Yeah. No, you did not. Yeah. Oh, my God. All in a day. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we had many talks about it and we realized, okay, we were going to use motion control. All right, and so explain what that is for the so it's a it's So it's a camera that is a robot, essentially. It's on, the, it's, it's on an arm. Yeah. It's on this gimbal and the, the camera is run by a computer... And it's a very precise move. They use it in car commercials a lot because they want those very precise kind of moves and it can do things that a human being can't. It can, it can move a lot quicker than a human being ever could and it can also ramp up to a weird angle like over the top of a car or something. So we knew we wanted to use that and we wanted to combine a stunt performer in a green suit with wires and so we ended up stitching three different shots together that have invisible cut points. Um, it's actually a stunt woman that gets thrown over the table, but we do this blend. So she crawls in and you don't see it, but it's, oh it's, it, we wanted it to feel all seamless. So you sort of have to take three different shots and blend them together. Is that how is Okay, so explain it. So basically, that, like, yeah. say with the stunt person, right, you have Elizabeth crawl right up to the point where she's about to get thrown, and then you call cut. And you take the stunt person, you put her in the exact same position using ghosting with the monitors. You get her in that position so that she matches exactly. And then you throw her across the table. And when she lands, everybody freezes and takes a million photos. And then you do the same thing with Elizabeth again. And then when you stitch it all together using visual effects at the end, it feels like one seamless shot, but it's actually three different shots. But as she, okay, as she lifts up in the air for the first time, is is that a person lifting her? Is it a wire? Like, like, like uh, it's just unreal. Yeah, it's wires. There's wires. And then there's like, um, um, we used a combination of like a, a stunt performer in a green bodysuit pulling her along the floor by the ankle and also wrestling with her. And we found out really quickly that it's, really tough to erase someone from a film frame. Yeah, it's how do you actually, get your it, plates? How do you get your clean plates? Um, well, in one case, we didn't have good clean plates. So what we actually had to do was um, rebuild some of the set in, in VFX, you know, like replace it because we didn't have clean plates. Jeez. So it's, 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 it's a million different approaches. And then we would also do things using ropes. We had a, a props guy off camera pulling a rope to flip the table over. So it kind of it's kind of a mixture between really state of the art CG and like in camera effects. in camera practical effects that they would have used on the 1933 yeah. Invisible Man. They would have been using ropes and strings to move things. Well, we do that too. And um, how did they erase the Invisible Man in the 30s? I, I actually read a big article about it, but it was something to do with exposure and how they used double exposures and were able to. Um, feature certain objects but not others. So the, the glass would be seen to lift in the air, but you could erase using these 
um, sort of exposures of film and layers that the layering allowed them to lose the guy but keep the glass, you know. It's fascinating <laughs> if you read into it. Yeah. But we definitely used some of those old-school approaches. I mean, and then sometimes it was really lo-fi. Like in one particular scene, an actor just beat themselves up. You know, Aldous Hodge should get some sort of award for beating himself <laughs> up. Yeah. I know it's in your, that scene is brutal. Yeah, and like God. him and Ed Norton should be sitting back with an award <laughs> on their shelf for, for, for fighting themselves. But Aldous, Aldous, he's a very athletic guy. Um, he's, he's done a lot of stunts. And he's just able to perform in a way. Yeah, yeah, he can throw himself around in a way that feels very realistic. So all I care about is getting the job done. Mm. Like, as long as the audience feels that the entire effect is seamless, I don't care whether it's an actor throwing themselves around or an expensive, you know, computer effect. All I care about is what is the effect on the audience? So if people tell me the kitchen scene is... Um, you know, amazing and hard hitting, and 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 kind of an explosive scene. That I'm happy. Wow, I want to talk about Wallfish's score because mm. the, as the film opens, and for, for people who are who, who don't know the story behind this, as you mentioned earlier, you're dealing with a woman who has been dealing with domestic abuse. Uh, the mm. husband is, you know, we learn all this through the beginning of the film as she tries to sneak out of the house and, and, mm-hmm. and move on with her life. Um, but you open the film up with this beautiful, like these title cards as the waves hit the water and then you have mm-hmm. the title cards pop up and then we go inside the house and then that same wave sound. But you have Oliver's hand over Elizabeth's mm-hmm. um, chest as she's sleeping. Mm-hmm. And while that seems like a normal thing you would do as a couple in bed together, it really is a, it's a power thing, right? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I wanted her instantly to, to be escaping from this control, you know, um, he controlled everything about her. Yeah, like, exactly. The mind, everything. Yeah, yeah, he made her change her hair and how she looked and how she dressed. And Elizabeth Moss and I would talk a lot about that, that she had a very distinct look for when she was in his house. She was all made up to go to bed with her hair all blonde. And then later you see her, she's a bit more dirty blonde, a bit more natural. Yeah. She's wearing more down-to-earth clothes. So the hand is, you know, with a movie, you're always trying to communicate a lot of information in a short span of time. Yeah. Audiences today have watched so many movies that they're cataloging things at light speed. You know, um, they have a really fast, you know, fact retention for your movie. So I know I can put that arm over Elizabeth and say a lot about her situation. It says everything. It says everything. Yeah, yeah. In just a hand. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's insane. Yeah, and, and, and it's great that you, that you notice that. Sometimes when you make these decisions on a movie... You think about it, you have a big conversation about it with the actors, and then you wonder if anyone in the theatre is going to take it home with them. Mm-hmm. So when you say that, it, 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 it's, it's definitely a gift to give to the filmmaker to say, oh, I loved that moment because it's basically the, the ribbon at the end of the marathon. Like, I did it. I did something on film months ago in Sydney, Australia, that's resonated with someone from mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. So. It's crazy. Uh, and so as that film opens, I wanted to ask you about camera and space. Um, mm-hmm. we, uh, as the film goes on, and if we get into anything spoilery, I can mm-hmm. hold those things until after release. But as the film, as we're in that scene, there's a moment where Elizabeth Moss's character is changing. And you have a camera position, you look over at her, and then the camera then goes, pans left down a hallway. Mm-hmm. Um, as a horror film, you start wondering, okay, who's coming down that hallway? Something mm-hmm. crazy going to happen. But in my opinion, it ended up being a POV aspect 
to mm-hmm. um, um, No, I, I think at that stage for me, what I wanted to do was introduce the audience to the visual language of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to make a movie where the camera was a character of its own. That, okay, that's what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to tell yeah. you. Because I feel like sometimes if you tell a filmmaker that, they go, well, I didn't want you to notice it. And like to me, the greatest balance a filmmaker can achieve, like someone like a Wes Anderson, like, like where his camera is clearly moving around and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a character... To me, the best thing about a filmmaker doing that is that you can find that balance where you don't lose yourself in the story, but you can appreciate that the camera itself yeah, is right. a character. And I think that's what... Was- Usually movies are trying to hide that fact. Right. They, they want the right. audience to forget that there's a camera there at all. Right. And, 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 and It's risky to tell them there's a camera there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you start knocking on that fourth wall, you risk the audience checking out of the movie... But I decided to take that risk because I was like, I, I want to do something unique. I've made a lot of horror films. I have to do something different here to keep myself interested. And I decided that with a movie called The Invisible Man, I could point the camera down an empty corridor and make it tense. You know, the audience would be suspicious of empty space yeah. because of the villain, because of the title and of the film. And you use space really well. Like, yeah. Like, I, mean, I, I was like, this, this could have been shot on 70mm, like Hateful Eight style, because every single space of the room yeah. felt important. Yeah, like, you, like I wanted the audience to be doing half the work for me and searching the frame going, wait, is, did I just see something? Did I just miss something? Yeah. Oftentimes I would, we would call action and I would say, wait, hold it, and run in and move something, like a curtain or oh, something. Wow. I just wanted, I wanted a sense of paranoia that, that filled every frame, that never let you off the hook. Yeah. I'm curious about horror beats. What I mean by that is, like, beats when you're going to hit the audience with something shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like as I was watching this film, like, I, I actually felt at moments, I was like, is he going to hit me here? And then you don't. And then the, then the scare or whatever, the violent moment will come later in the scene. Are mm-hmm. you... Are you aware that the audience may think that that's coming at that point? Yeah. Do you actually take that into consideration? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I've made enough horror films and watched enough horror films to know where the audience expects something to happen. And the fun is in the tease. The, the fun is in walking the audience up to the line, staring over the cliff, and then walking them back. And you can really make people squirm. Yeah. Because in a way, uh, a, a, an adrenaline spike or a jump scare is letting the audience off the hook. Because as soon as it's happened, there is there is uh, a, a release that happens. That it's a tension release. It's like a laugh and a comedy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a laugh. But yeah, exactly. It's happened and you come down from it. I don't want to do that. I think filmmakers sometimes make the mistake of thinking that the that the the juice of the film is in the scare moment. Actually, it's in the walk up to the line. I, uh, it's the teasing out and the not paying off that makes people kind of clench into a fist, you know, yeah. and just be like, come on. Um, and, 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 you know, I was really inspired by Hitchcock on this movie. I was watching a lot of Hitchcock movies when I was preparing to write the script and just kind of analysing, like, exactly how he uses the camera to make the audience certain that something terrible is about to happen. And uh, I, 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 knew, I just knew I could mess with people on this movie because... I have a villain who's not visible. Yeah. I mean, he could be standing right next to you and we wouldn't know it. And, you know, there's a scene, I won't spoil anything in the movie, which I knew would be a big shock in the movie. That scene, which we'll, we'll keep vague, yeah. is like one of the... I would imagine that you probably can't wait to go opening weekend and just sit in the See, back oh, of the yeah. and then have that scene take place. I know. Like, I've, I, I've, I, feel, I, I really like... am looking forward to it. <laughs> there are certain really vocal audiences. Like, yeah. I'd love to go to Times Square, New York, and just watch one of those midnight audiences oh kind of God. take in the movie. 
But yeah, those those moments are the fun ones when you just rip people's heads off. Yeah. You know, you've teased them enough and you're like, okay, fine, I'll give you a little gift here and let you off the hook for a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, man, I, I'm glad it resonated with you. I mean, when you're shooting it, you have this idea that maybe this will work, but you really don't know until you stick it in front of people. And um, we did a couple of test screenings and it, it, a lot of the scenes that I hoped would be shocking are definitely shocking. Yeah. I'm getting, uh, there's someone at the doorway. Like, do it's uh, kind of like Do we have a couple more minutes or are we, or, well, I, did, I don't want to keep him. It's the end of your day. It's so all good. It's all good. Do you have a couple more minutes? Yeah, all yeah, right. yeah. Oh, all right, cool. Um, uh, Wallfish's score. Um, the way you utilize score in this film, like camera, is like a leading character. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of moments where the score is not there at all. There's no sound mm-hmm. uh, in regards to like the music. And that actually becomes an immersive quality in itself because you, you're you like in that scene. There's no music. Yeah, nice. Dealing with the That's breathing. good. But then you hit us with that brutal score of his, like that like that main... Oh, that main yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about, as a director, how you direct score? How do you, uh, is it, do you direct it like an actor? Do you direct like, like a character? And do you think about it like from an emotional arc standpoint about when you want to hit the audience? Absolutely. Like, you need to think about it as if it's part of the screenplay. Yeah. You, you, you need to think about what, because I don't believe in just score for score's sake. You know, if we, if we, if we have a scene of spaceships flying, you know, maybe we have this pounding music, but I think the score's better when it's counterintuitive. Like, for instance, if someone's walking down a dark corridor, I'd prefer not to score it. Mm. I'd rather let silence be the thing. And then all of a sudden hit the audience with the score in a place they don't expect. So it actually becomes uh, it, it becomes an addition to the movie rather than just... Uh, playing along with the movie, it, 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 it kind of fights against it in a way. Yeah. And I, I wanted to have um, two concurrent themes in the film, one for Cecilia's character, which was very organic, orchestral instruments, and then Adrian, which I wanted to be very abrasive, yeah. electronic. Brutal. Yeah, and just brutal. And so Ben Wolfish, he's done some amazing scores. You know, he did Blade Runner 2049. He did the It movies. He has a foot in both camps because if you listen to the score for it, it's very orchestral, traditional. Yeah. If you listen to Blade Runner, it's this, this like um, you know futuristic kind of forward-thinking synth-orientated score. So I was like, just think of these two camps, and we would talk a lot about the emotions. I, I wanted it to be almost difficult to listen to. I wanted the f- film to be stressful, and one of the ways to do that is to make the score. It's, it's not even music. It's like this, like, it, grinding yeah. sound that kind of wears you down. It's like almost like a, like a, it's almost like sound in the film world. Mm-hmm. Like, it's actually an interesting, because, like, even the waves, the waves almost kind of, the wave crashing almost kind of leads you into that being something that could exist in the sound of the world of the movie, which oh, is great. actually interesting. Yeah, that, that's, I love sound design. You know, that's one thing you don't get asked about much as a filmmaker. It's great to talk about it. Is, I mean, look is at what sound design. Ford v. Ferrari, like, that, that's all sound. You, that, yeah. The sound is what makes that, yeah. those, those but, car well, then, But if that's the case, why, why aren't there any long conversations about film sound? You know, I hear a lot of people idolizing cinematographers and yeah. and directors but sound is just such an unsung hero it's 50% of the medium yeah. you know it's an audio visual medium and people will complain in a theater a lot faster if the sound's not working than the visuals yeah. you know like sound is really the thing Take that it for works granted. yeah Take exactly it, for it just gets taken for granted and yeah. you put so much work into it i love talking about it because you know, aside from Ben's score, Will Files was the sound mixer on this film and he's worked on tons of movies. You know, he worked on the Star Trek movies, Star yeah. Wars. 
So he was kind of almost out of our budget range. So we felt really blessed to have someone at that level. And he and I just had so much fun for weeks at Sony Studios, throwing sounds all over the room. We used like the Dolby Atmos system to kind of, I would say I want things to go off the screen. Like there's one scene, did you have that moment where the bed sheet gets pulled and you, you did your eyes go yes. off the screen to oh, the corner of the theater? Oh, my eyes were, were, were trying to find more frame in your film that was on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Like when she's like looking down into like, into like that attic thing. Oh, of course. So I you're was, like leaning over. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, if you saw me in that scene, I was like this. <laughs> and I, I, was like, I was like, I was like, I literally almost stood up in the theater. I mean, mm-hmm. um, all right, as I wrap up, Oliver, uh, um, obviously we, we can't say so much about what he's mm-hmm. doing in the film, but because his character is the invisible man in regards mm-hmm. to the emotion that she's dealing with did he still play him invisible uh sometimes sometimes he would sometimes we would get him in just to be a presence and sometimes we wouldn't have anybody it was really all over the place sometimes in the movie when you're looking down a corridor there really is someone there that we've had to erase and other times it would just be emptiness you know we would have whole scenes where elizabeth was having a conversation with nobody oh, wow. um so it was really fun, man. It's, it's been a great experience and, like, um, you've caught me right at that moment when I just finished it. So it's, it's good to unpack it in real time. Yeah. Like, be like, okay, this is, this, is, this is what we were intending to do and, you know, seeing how it's landed. All right, we're going to wrap this up, but thank you so much, Lee, for thank joining you, us. Thank you, mate. Always good to um, chat to you. Everyone, please check out Upgrade if you haven't seen it. It is truly incredible and the camera work in this film is the same. It's just unbelievable what you did here. I don't understand. I still think the budget, there's no way you made it for seven million. <laughs> I just don't understand it. Well, it's all a lie. Cheers, brother. Thank good you to see so you again. much. I appreciate it. That's fun, man. That was a good time. Obviously, we want to thank everybody at Universal Pictures for giving us the time with Lee. Um, I, I, I'm psyched to go see Invisible Man. Kevin's got me really fired up for it. I'm going after we record this episode. And uh, it, it's, you know, after Bad Boys for Life, that we I, I haven't had something to be excited about uh, at the theaters. It's been a very quiet January, February. I like Birds of Prey, uh, but that was one that I sort of went into tentatively. Not quite sure how it was going to play out. It's not doing as well as uh, the studio hoped it was going to do. So hopefully Invisible Man does really well. I know when Kevin came out of it, he said, you guys are not prepared for how well this movie is going to do. It's, it's unreal. And, and, I, and I'll tell you right now, and, we'll, and we can get into this later on in the show at some point. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably one of the first, one of the few films I've actually sat down to think about sound design. And I rewatched Upgrade the other day. And you think about a movie co- that costs $3 million and looks the way that film looks. It's all about the sound design okay. and how he builds the world. And that's what's so crazy about The Invisible Man. So really. we're, we're heading to a theater where we don't normally do press screenings because Universal requested a Dolby Atmos theater. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Which is you, very rare. Let me tell you something right now. Um, <laughs> to keep this, it's so hard to explain, but you, the tension you will feel from the opening frame until the end, it's. I haven't felt that type of insecurity in it as an audience member where I just genuinely was scared to death. I did not know what was going to happen. Because you have to understand the idea of somebody being in your house that you can't see, that is there to hurt you, and it's actually technically possible how that person is in your house, That's if awesome. you think about it. And that is so freaking scary to me because it's, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how else to explain it other than it is genuinely terrifying. Okay. That's all I will say. 
All right, good. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to it later in the episode, too. We're going to go into a little bit more details about it. But before we do that, Sean, on the yes. When you see it, I want you, when you get out of it, I want you to text me and tell me how that was made for $7 million. Okay. I want you to, I want you to, I want you to honestly try and tell me how you think it was made for $7 million. Well, Kevin, they saved on half the cast because one of them's invisible. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That's funny. They don't but have to do show. Expl- how do you Half explain a one? How do you explain a one-shot scene where Elizabeth Moss is being thrown around a kitchen with no one there? Well, you know what I, I mean? It's uh, let pretty me wild. See it. Let me yeah. see it, and then I'll yeah. tell you. I'll tell you all the secrets. All right, staying on the Universal bandwagon, uh, Jurassic Park has revealed minutes before we started recording this episode uh, that the new title for Jurassic World Three, not Jurassic Park Three, uh, is Jurassic Park Dominion. Uh, Jakey, as our resident Jurassic fan, fanatic, uh, does the word Dominion float your boat? Uh, it's for me less the word Dominion and more the fact that everything about the logo and the font is going back to the original. They're using uh-huh. that because remember that all the Jurassic World was very steel and blue and the logo kind of like it was the T-Rex logo, but it, it was very steely. It looked, looked very modern. Everything about this is all Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And it's throwing back to Jurassic Park. And, of course, as we know, um, Dr. Sadler is coming back. Dr. Grant's coming back. And hopefully Ian Malcolm in a much bigger role than he was in uh, Fallen Kingdom. And then I saw, uh, was it Joseph Mazzello? Yeah, Timmy. Uh, hinted that t- Timmy might be coming back. And, my, and the implication is if Timmy's coming back, that uh, his sister's coming back as well. Right. Um, so... That excites me. You know, it's so funny. I always, I always get so excited over these movies and then end up not liking them. I mean, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't genuinely liked a Jurassic movie since The Lost World, since Spielberg was was still behind the camera. But I still get so jacked whenever yeah. they come out. I still, I hold on to that nostalgia. And I think it comes from my love of uh, of the first one so much. And I actually really do like The Lost World quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm in, dude. I'm in. Call it whatever the hell you want to call it. They got my money. We all have those franchises where no matter how many times they set up another one, you, you look at it like, no, nah, I'm not getting, I'm not, I'm not getting excited what? for that one. And then you do. And then and it, you get dis- what's yours? Disappointed. Uh, well, for the longest time, it was the diehard franchise, but the Russian one. But you weren't burned. You've been burned once. Okay. You got burned once. Uh, I've been yeah, burned for me, 20 years. I'm thinking there's another one. Yeah. I'm trying to think of there's another one. Kevin's is the Terminator franchise. Oh I my God. I've been burned so many times on <laughs> the Terminator franchise. Yes. It was funny, like the other day, like there was like some trending tweet thing going around that if you could make one sequel to any movie ever, what would it be? And I was like, Terminator 2 probably, because they've tried five times and every one of them has been genuinely pretty bad. I rewatched three the other day and that did not hold up. By the way, uh, uh, Chris Pratt just Instagrammed about the title. Um, and I thought it was actually an interesting definition. So Dominion, which, I, you know... We all know what it means, but the way he describes it was interesting. It's sovereignty or control, man's attempt to establish dominion over nature, oh. um, which I think, you know, now that makes a lot of sense considering the concept of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. So it's funny when I heard the term dominion in our text chat, I, I was like, that's a weird title because it doesn't really flow. Right. Jurassic World, the fallen kingdom flows. Jurassic Park uh, or the lost world that flows. Jurassic World dominion just seems a little abrupt. But man's attempt to establish dominion over nature. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty. My only thought is that, like, at the end of Fallen Kingdom, there were only like eighteen dinosaurs that got out. Like, what? Like, if the plot of this one is that dinosaurs are taking over our modern world, they're gonna need. They're gonna need more than than whatever fit into that little house. So does that mean that this is basically Lost World again? 
right? Because well, well, isn't that Lost isn't that World how, was it, just it, the T Rex that was running around. What is it, San Francisco or San but Diego? But the T Rex left San Jurassic Diego. Park, right? San Diego. Yeah, a T Rex. Right. No, a T Rex from a different island. Oh, I don't know. Because it was because the Lost World was a different island. Lost World is. is is the island? That's right. It was Island Isla Nublar, Cerna. And Isla, Isla Sorna, and Isla Nublar. Mm-hmm. I only saw Lost World one time. It's good, dude. There's there's some classic. I mean, you oh, could tell. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg admits that he kind of like lost the wind in his sails about halfway through production. But there are moments in that movie lost. that are classic, classic Spielberg moments. For me, being the the, the most pinnacle being. When the RV is hanging off the cliff, Julianne Moore is falling. You think she's going to fall through. Bam, she oh, hits yeah. the glass. You know what? It's interesting about that. Well, that scene is iconic. And I, I and I haven't seen the movie since I was a kid, and I still remember that scene. But the concept of dinosaurs running through our natural world is a freaky concept. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a great yeah. idea. It just needs to be executed properly. My The thing – and listen, I know you guys didn't love Fallen Kingdom. Um, but my – interest in Fallen Kingdom was the return to practical effects and bringing Jay Bayona, bringing back that Spielberg aspect of getting as much as they could in camera with Colin Trevorrow coming back and the first one only having one animatronic dinosaur. I'm hoping he takes a page out of Bayona's book and also Spielberg's book and brings back that animatronic element. If he does that, he had think about Colin's position right now. He actually has a great chance to turn this around. He has a great chance to deliver a great Jurassic World film. And I think, you know, with when he left Star Wars, Skywalker was ripped apart by a lot of fans. I, I wonder if he's going into this going, you know what? Okay, I, I understand people didn't love one. I made a lot of money. I, you know, I got removed from Star Wars or whatever the story is there. This is kind of his chance to go, here, let me let me be a great filmmaker again, and I and the, and I think that this is a big opportunity for someone like him who hasn't had a great track record recently to come back out and go, boom, here you go. And yeah. I think the way you do that is you bring back animatronics. You're already bringing back Goldblum. You're already bringing back Dern. I mean, there, there's a way to make this film almost the sequel to Jurassic Park mm-hmm. if you think about it. If you if, if you can do it right. I would love um, to see it. We'll so see today is d- day one of filming, and uh, we'll continue to track Jurassic World Dominion as it goes through. So um, uh, let's skip to this week in movies. Now, I want to get to the first title that's written here, because I've not heard of it. It's called Greed. It's in limited release. Greed. I think it's okay. a sequel to Creed, but they just like they go up in the letters. Gotcha. So it just goes up, and I think we did deed. Oh, I missed greed. Feed. Yeah, you did missed it. feed. Did you, did you see feed? No, I didn't see feed. Feed was amazing. All right, we're did you see? Uh, did you see Michael Douglas's review of that movie? <laughs> no. Greed is good. Greed is good. <laughs> that, it's that's really good, a good. Jake. It's really I don't good. know why they put that on a poster. They should have paid Michael Douglas Greed to put that on a poster. Good, Michael Douglas. Uh, uh, but I will get to our second uh, title that's here because I want to duke it out with Jake Hamilton. Uh, Wendy is going into limited release, and I loved this movie. Uh, we had Ben Zeitland on the show. Last week, um, hopefully getting you guys prepped for it. It is a Peter Pan narrative. Kevin, you haven't seen it, right? I have not seen this movie yet. Okay. Jake went to go see it in Chicago. He and I texted afterwards. And because he has no heart and uh, hates beautiful things, uh, he told me that it was terrible. <laughs> I didn't say it was terrible. I didn't, <laughs> didn't say it was terrible. It was terrible. No, of course. I'm going the complete opposite into internet reaction. So I'm going to go first and just let you guys know that um, 
again, you know, we're just sort of, do you recommend this or not recommend this? I absolutely recommend it, specifically if you enjoyed uh, that kind of ethereal um, hyper-surrealism that Ben Zeitlin brought to Beasts of the Southern Wild. And that was a movie that got a Best Picture nomination. He got Best Director that year as a first-timer. Um, he he has a very specific approach to his storytelling. Uh, it's very handheld. It's a ton of close-ups. Um, it deals in fantasy land, and he plugs that into the Peter Pan narrative, but tells it through the the uh, focal point of Wendy, which is uh, she's a little girl who lives in what looks like a Louisiana type backwoods town. Uh, she hops on a train and heads off to Neverland with a Peter who recruits her to come with her. Um, and then he films around an island in the Caribbean, essentially. And you meet the Lost Boys and you pick up other uh, traces of the Peter Pan narrative. And he makes some changes to it, some tweaks to it, uh, but ultimately comes around to what becomes the origin story for uh, Peter and Captain Hook. And I was just enamored with it. Uh, Jake, you not so much. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I think it's visually stunning. I I really was in awe of, of the cinematography. Love the score. Like, could see this end up being, like, really end up seeing this uh, being one of my favorite scores of the year. I just, and, and this is going to sound more harsh than I intended to. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm That's just telling you. That's a good setup. That's a good setup. I'm not sure this movie has any reason to exist. Okay, sure. It, 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 it I just don't feel like, like, when it was done, I don't feel like it added anything, like, what is it like a cool, hip, more grounded, more real, visceral version of Peter Pan? It's still Peter Pan, and we don't need another Peter Pan, Sean. Like we've gotten right. enough. Like I'm like I don't need to see every director's version of Peter Pan. And like, yes, you can be like, yeah, but in this one, uh, this person is Hook, and this person is Peter, and this person's Wendy. It's still the same damn story, dude. And it's still like at the end of the day. It's this. It's a different person to, uh, sitting around the campfire telling the same story. You could, you could, all of us could sit around the campfire and tell the story of Peter Pan, and might we might be telling it in a different way and, and add our own personal flavor to it, but we're still telling the same story. And I'm just, I'm just tired of it, man. And I'm just not sure that the visuals, uh, uh, the, the the story itself did not match the visuals. I, I pictured him being way more interested in just how gorgeous it is, and it is. Than, than really adding anything. I wish, I love Beast of the Southern Wild. I would have loved if he had taken that flair and given us something original with it. The the part that I thought he dialed into that was different than what I've seen in other versions of Peter Pan. and You um, haven't seen Hook. <clears throat> no, the he treats the idea of maturing. Well, you haven't seen Hook? Uh, no, I've never seen Hook. No, I didn't. What? I've not seen Spielberg's Hook. No, Sorry. I I haven't seen it. No, it's true. I, no, I know. That I know. It's a, I'm saying I'm sorry for you. And I'm not a, saying I'm sorry for interrupting you. It's a gaping, <laughs> it's a gaping hole in my filmography. Yeah. That was a lot harsher than I intended it to be. Sorry. <laughs> right. It's, it's uh, one of those movies that everyone tells me is bad, but right. I grew up with it. So I absolutely love I it. I loved it. Um, I love Hook. But I, I don't know. I'm not going to. I even told. Spielberg that because Spielberg doesn't like it and I told Spielberg that I like it oh then why on earth would I watch it like what kind of recommendation is that <laughs> joking jokingly though Hook yeah. is considered to be a lesser film yeah. um it is definitely not hailed as a good movie but yeah. I like Jake Hook was a big movie in my childhood and I love it so yeah. I will stand on that on that mountain and love that movie I have no problem R- with that. regardless I liked what Ben Zeitlin tried to do in terms of treating um 
uh, aging, the concept of aging as a disease and and how it infects certain people and they have to react to aging. I, I thought he brought some really whimsical ideas to Peter Pan. I'm I'm with Jake in the sense that do we need another Peter Pan narrative? Nah, not necessarily, but I enjoyed the way that he told it. I agree with you 100% on the score. His score for Beasts was also beautiful and this one is um it's tri- it's a really triumphant kind of entertaining adventure score and he did it himself. He did it with um his collaborator who we worked on with Beasts also. So he's a musician as well too. I like Ben Zeitlin a lot. So I'd say go see Wendy um, especially if you're looking for a different uh, version of the Peter Pan narrative. And when you're done with it, come back and listen to our interview with Ben Zeitlin, which is on episode number 106. Uh, did either of you guys see Emma, which expands this week? I did not. Interesting. Uh, and then, so that brings us to The Invisible Man, which is the only big sort of wide release going this week. Jake, you see it tonight also? Correct. Yep. All right. So Kevin, this one falls on you. Spoiler free yeah, I- review. Spoiler free, I, I just want to say this. Uh, I think that you, this is a film that really is going to teach a lot of people about how to, uh, uh, like the, the remind people a lot about how low budget filmmaking is something that is something that people need to understand and look into more. Because you look at the Get Out, for example, which was made for a very small budget as well. These are films that are very layered in character and very layered in interesting visuals, but then don't need a ton of money to tell their story. The Invisible Man is a film that I feel like could have easily been a 30, 40, 50 million dollar film. And it looks like a 50 million dollar film. And I think what Lee did here is he took the idea of the Invisible Man story and he based it in a a message about domestic abuse. Um, So Elizabeth Moss's character as you'll see in the beginning of the film, is trying to escape her scientist husband who's been very abusive towards her. Um, And as you can see in the trailers, uh, he dies, right? And somehow haunts her through being, uh, through through an invisible man of some sort. That's all I will say. I want to pause you really fast. Yeah. Because I would have never thought to approach the invisible man that way. You right? know, like as they're trying to revive these universal monster movies and they're right. they're old characters that I th- I think it's hard to make them feel contemporary until someone comes up with an idea like that. And the minute you hear it, yeah. you're like, oh, damn, of course, that's a great way to do it. Right. And think about how horrifying that is. So you, the person that you has been abusing you that you've outrun uh, has died and they are somehow haunting you through some type of invisible man idea. Mm-hmm. And. While what I said earlier in the in the show, what makes the film so scary is that nothing in the film actually feels out of reality. Yes, mm-hmm. we're maybe 20 years away and trillions of dollars away from creating this technology of how this would work. And it's one of those things where like your brain, when something is in within reach, within a reach of an idea of something that could be possible that makes it 10 times scarier. Um, and Elizabeth Moss's performance in this film just blew my mind. She is so great in it. Um, is the film perfect? No, I think it could have been cut down maybe about 10 minutes or so. But other than that, it is just truly a remarkable cinematic achievement. And I think people are not ready for how scary it is. And it's not scary in the sense of like scares that you're used to. It's more about tension building and, just the sheer eeriness of looking at an entire room trying to figure out where this thing could possibly be, right? And so you have these wild shots of Elizabeth Moss walking through a gigantic open house, and you, as an audience member, are studying every inch of the frame. You are just as much a part of the cinematic process 
as the film itself. Like you are involved. You're looking. You're seeing if a footprint is down somewhere or if a if a if a if a curtain has been moved or and I found myself and this is going to sound crazy there's a moment in the trailer where she's in an attic and she's like searching around in the attic and I won't give away what happens in that scene but I was in my chair getting up and looking over the frame wow. trying to find more of the frame because I was trying to I was almost like trying to protect the character from getting oh hurt God. and I don't know why I felt the need to protect her because I'm an audience member, but the way Lee directs that scene is he, he like, as she goes towards the, the doorway of the attic, as you've seen in the trailer before she pours the paint, and as you're going towards the door, the opening of the door, you are looking over that doorway, even though it doesn't even exist on the frame. It wasn't even shot. You know what I mean? So to me, that's when a filmmaker has gotten you, right? And, and you think about the sound design, the visual effects aesthetic of it. See, all you really need to do to build tension is have a great actor in a scene, write the scene well, sound design that scene like crazy, and shoot it well. Visual effects are a tool that a director should use like in a paint, right? And if you're looking in paint, Microsoft Paint, and you start doing stuff to an image, CGI should be like one of the little tools you use to fill some stuff in, not to create the entirety of the scene. And I think what Lee did here is the in-camera effects of it is it just makes it so much more believable and scary. Like nothing in this film is, as I'm thinking about it right now, is downright the scariest thing I've ever seen. It's because of the way it was done that makes it so scary. Um, so I, I just found the film to be incredibly well done. Ben Walfish's score is genius. And Lee does a great job of n uh, allowing the score to stop and allowing you to live in those moments without any music. And then he just bursts the score at you in very interesting times. And that score becomes a character. And the camera becomes a character. And this is the last thing I'll say about it before we move on. When you guys watch the movie tonight, um, I'm very interested to talk to you guys afterwards because... The camera itself is a character in the movie, and I mean that because he's giving you certain POV throughout the film and not really telling you what that POV is, which creates much more intensity as you watch it. So just I'm curious what you guys think. I went in with very I went in with very middle expectations. I didn't know what to expect. But when that thing started and that and that music hit and the, and the eeriness of the way it's shot, it's just utterly terrifying and it's awesome and Kevin, i want to recommend upgrade if anybody hasn't seen upgrade i rewatched that again the other day we're this filmmaker this is the kind of filmmaker we need nowadays that to push out films at minimal budgets that show you that ev you know what this movie does is it shines a light on every person who works on a movie like, I have never really stopped to think about sound design that much. And now I am because it's such an important factor into that. And that, by the way, that's a little tease ahead to my uh, underrated 80s pick, by the way. But yeah. Ooh, nice. Um, I haven't heard your interview with Lee yet. Uh, we're including it in this week's episode. By the time we reach this segment of the show, everyone else will have heard it yet. So they'll know the answer to this. Did you ask him about the backstory of the most important character he has ever played on screen? The cargo pilot from Aquaman. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. No, he, he did start singing Toto's Africa at some Thank point. God, Which yes. was a really great moment. No, but <laughs> you, you know what's crazy about Lee? And, and, and in the interview, you probably heard this. His story is so cool, man. Like, him and James create this Saw film, right? And then you – and that movie comes out of nowhere. It becomes this gigantic beast. And then Lee is, you know, co-writing and working on all these movies with James for all these years. He directs Insidious 3. And then he comes out the gate with Upgrade. 
a $3 million film that had no business being as good as it did. Right. The other day, the other day I'm sitting in my uh, living room, my college friends come over uh, and one of them had seen upgrade. And the other one hadn't. And you, th- I throw it on. And to me, I get so much joy watching a movie, watching somebody see it for the first time, not knowing how awesome the film's going to be. Upgrades a film that kind of creeps up on you. Have you guys both seen upgrade? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it, with, I know, with I'm sorry, fake Tom Hardy. Yeah, mm-hmm. fake Tom Hardy. But Gabe hasn't <laughs> Gabe hasn't seen it. That's why. That's why it's I was, a better but, version of Venom than Venom actually is. But you got to think about Upgrade was a you know Upgrade's not a perfect movie. I mean, there's some bad dialogue at times. I mean, every every movie has flaws. But I mean, you got to think about what he did with what he did, and it's yeah, really kind of crazy. It really is. So I also want to just take a moment before we move off of the Invisible Man. Um, that uh, one of the things that fascinates me the most, and I'm going to show it to you guys here as well too. Um, when you talk about a studio just oh, be- yeah. hedging their bets and putting the cart way before the horse, I'm showing them a picture of the uh, the cast that was assembled for the Dark Universe. Yeah. And I guess we have to celebrate that um, the mummy, that the studio at least recognized that what they tried to set up with a mummy was so bad that they didn't push forward, like force it, you know, like force more movies in the franchise. But you have a cast photo here teasing a franchise, a connected universe franchise that would have had... Russell Crowe, <laughs> Javier Bardem, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, and Sofia Botella. Now, uh, four mega stars and an actress on the rise, right? And, and then you talk about the just the, the catering budget for the, for whatever these movies would have been. Lee Whannell went and made a far better movie, and so a happy and that's, ending. That's kind of where, where I'm thinking about right now, like, had the connected universe actually continued on, we would not have this movie. And right. I think a lot of people are going into Invisible Man the way I did. It was like, okay, I've already seen this story. I've seen the Invisible Man. I, I, I'm kind of over the Universal Monster movie because Mummy wasn't great. Mummy uh, with Tom Cruise and you know all the other films you know aren't happening or whatever. So I was wondering why I would want to see this, and I'm telling you. I think it's just going to shock people how well it's done. And and it's funny because I'm sitting here like hyping this film up to you guys. And I want to make something clear. Like when you go into a film with middle expectations, you know, you, when you get surprised by something, it, it really hits you. You become super passionate about it. And like, yeah. and, 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 you know what I mean? So um, when you guys watch the movie and I try and try to minimize my hype and just, you know, enjoy, enjoy it. But, uh, but I, mean, I love that you spent like 30 minutes like hyping this movie up. And then you're like, no, but don't listen to me. No, I say that because I have been on the other end of this spectrum where I've seen a film or I've seen people see a film that they were blown away by that I and then I go in and I'm and, and Parasite did that to me, actually. Parasite was 17. Yeah. Well, Parasite was so hyped up when I went and saw it. I just didn't it didn't live up to what I expected it to be. That, you know, again, that we're all human beings. We go in with certain bias. We all have certain ideas of what certain movies are going to be like based on filmmakers or actors or whoever's involved in them. Um, so I just want you guys to, you know, I, I almost wish we didn't have to talk about the movie. So you guys could have just saw it at the level I saw it at. You know what I mean? So just try to enjoy it from that perspective if you can. You know what's better is when the hype is through the roof and you watch it and you go, and it delivers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, though they were right. This, this <laughs> oh, one, right. this one, I am truly confident. I'm confident you guys will love this, enjoy the movie and think it's All scary right. for sure. That, that is one of, benef- one of the benefits of doing the junkets, actually, is that you oftentimes... One, like you end up being the person that makes the hype one way or the other is right. that you, you get to see the movie really usually before um, that, that initial reaction comes up. Mm. I've been trying to keep I've been trying to scale it back on that one, particularly because I, I know 
I saw it a couple weeks ago, and I haven't really talked about it except to you guys over text. I tweeted about one thing about it minorly when I was rewatching Upgrade, but I, I yeah, I'm, you guys got to message me afterwards. We ha- I want to have a full fledged discussion next week about how the movie was done. I have no idea. Gabe wants me to point out that there is a small spoiler portion um, of the Wanell interview that we Ooh, cut. Uh, well, we cl- oh, we clipped yeah. it out, so look for it on uh, Real Blend socials. Uh, after the movie is released, we will put out those answers and you guys will be able to hear Kevin's extended conversation with Lee Winnell. Can I give a shout out to Aldous Hodge, by the way, who's fantastic in the film and I don't think gets enough credit as an actor. Um, sure. I, I think he is so good in this movie. And once you guys see it um, next week, I'll tell you about a scene that will blow your mind uh, um, because I can't say it now without context, but that guy crushed it. He's so nice. good in the movie. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yes, Jakey. Quick breaking news, not more business side than what we normally talk about. Uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger is stepping down. Whoa, really? Yeah, to be wow. replaced by Bob Shapek. I don't know who that is. C-H-A-P-E-K. Anyway, it just came through, and I like when breaking news happens in the middle of the wow, show. Wow, goodness. Is, is Bob Iger's tired of making billions upon billions of dollars year after year? Apparently. Yeah, it's, it's he said really it was tough. an optimal time to step down following the Disney acquisition from Fox. Well, it sounds like he's just moving onward, you know? Do you, does it not feel that the book on that movie is closed already? Yes. Like, I haven't even seen it. My screening is like a week away, and I feel like we've already dismissed it. It's over and done. Wow. I'm actually shocked by that news because Iger has been such a pivotal player in all of this. Yeah, I know. Do you think he really stepped down? I mean, mm. he, they, he just came off of a year where Disney made, what, seven different movies that crossed a billion dollars? Like, it's, it's not like he wow. can be found wanting yeah, or anything. Why do, you, why do you step down from that? I don't know. Well, why not go I, out on top, man? That's a good point, because this year is not going to be as big as last year. That's I heard he's going to legally change his name to, to Bob Biger. <laughs> Oh God, they're getting worse. <laughs> you say Bob like 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 he says goodbye, Bob, yeah, 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 Bob, Bob, Bob Biger. I, I give you Michael Douglas Green is good, and I get like a half chortle. Like thanks, Jake. Thanks no, for participating. That's not you true. Get we Bob Biger, just fine. and and the two of you are tickled pink like a couple of schoolgirls. Yeah, but Sean, we don't know that Jake isn't telling a Bob Liger right now. I mean, he could be completely lying to us. We, you know, this could be just some. Thing he's pulling on us, you know. Oh, he maybe he's going to go over to another studio and be a Bob Spiker. (laughs) 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 All right, let's let this. Jake's going to get really mad, and Bob Diger is second here if we don't stop (laughs) saying these puns. Do you know his favorite Sugar Ray song, Kevin? (laughs) No, please tell me. Bob Flyger. <laughs> Flyger. Did yes. you hear about his favorite movie starring Shannon Elizabeth? Oh, yes, American Piger. American Piger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's a good one. You All And right. clearly you know his favorite Rocky song, right? No. Oh. Eye, of the, Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> Eye of the Bob Tiger. Iger of the Tiger. I, I hate this show. I hate oh, this crying. show. I'm actually, cr- I'm Kriger. Oh. I'm actually Bob Kriger. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Blend Game. Blend Game. We're playing hashtag 
underrated 80s blend. Um, a while back, we did underrated 70s blend where we picked films that we thought don't get enough attention. Um, so that's the challenge is finding a movie that you think you can define as underrated. And I think it's going to get harder as we get into decades where, you know, so many of the films that we grew up with and love are um, worshipped and adored. And so, uh, Kevin, tell us what you chose since you hinted, teased uh, what your choice is going to be. What was your pick for hashtag underrated 80s blend? Well, it's funny. I, I want to give a shout out to a, a friend of mine I had in high school. His name was Chris Ingram. And Chris was somebody that I worked at a movie theater with. And he was a, a an avenue into a lot of films that I began to love. He's the one who showed me True Romance. He's the one who um, we watched a lot of Robert Rodriguez films growing up. I used to go to his house all the time. We'd watch like a bunch of David Lynch movies like Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. Um, he was like a friend that like really kind of was a big gateway into different filmmakers for me. Um, and one of the films I remember him telling me about when I was growing up that I had never heard of before that I later found out was one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies ever. And now it makes all makes perfect sense was Blowout. Um, Brian De Palma's Blowout. And it was a film that made no money. I mean, reportedly, I think about 13 million at the box office. Uh, very underrated uh, in regards to that. I think nowadays it is hailed as a classic. It's, 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 in a, you know, it's an iconic film. Um, I was reading somewhere that, you know, obviously with with Quentin Tarantino loving that movie, that was uh, that could have possibly been a reason for his hiring on Pulp Fiction. Um, but, you know, this is an 81 film by De Palma, and it is such a great concept uh, and a great story. This, you know, Travolta plays a guy who's working on a film. He's trying to collect sound effects for a low budget film he's making. And while collecting sound effects he he records the sound of a, a massive car crash into a into a creek and uh rescues the girl and um and and then the driver dies and and that particular idea is so fascinating because what can you get from sound that could help solve a case and it it really is it's a film i've only seen i think twice and the reason i used it today was because I was going through 80s films and there's so many big 80s films that are, I just wouldn't consider to be underrated and Blowout was the one that popped out to me because I was like no one really talks about Blowout that often it's a great film Tarantino uh, considers it one of the greatest movies ever made De Palma is one of the you know whatever you want to say about him he's a phenomenal filmmaker um, one of Travolta's best performances 100% I mean it is Next to Pulp Fiction, it might be my second favorite performance from him. Um, I just think it's, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Face Off would be second, then uh, Blowout third. But but there is something special about this film in regards to, you know, if you, sound design is something I was talking about earlier in the show with, with uh, Upgrade and The Invisible Man. It's a film that really kind of gives you an idea of how important sound is, really, and the reality of the reason why I chose it, because it's been years since I've seen it, is because I just kind of wanted to highlight it on the show. Uh, I wanted to bring attention back to it because the film was brought to my attention when I was in high school by my friend Chris. Uh, I've told people about watching it over the years. Uh, and, you know, one of the best things about doing this show every week is when people uh, write us emails or messages and say, hey, I watched so-and-so film because the show mentioned it. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that. It's been so long since I've seen Blowout that now I want to go back and rewatch it based on the conversation I'm having right now with you guys. Just just saying it out loud and talking about it again. Um, That's awesome. We all, we all have special people in our lives who delivered us or showed us films. And I think it, it's funny because I, I we measure a lot of our 
lives about about when movies come out. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it came out around the same. Like I remember my brother's wedding because it came out around the time I did Mad Max. You know what I mean? We have, movies are so connected to our daily lives that they that there is someone that's it means something to you connected to the film. So Chris showing me this film in high school gave me an appreciation for De Palma, gave me an appreciation for where Quentin Tarantino may have gotten Travolta. So Blowout. Definitely see it. Highly recommend it. That's awesome, man. Great choice. I want to just read really quick where Travolta was at that time in his career. In 76, he did Carrie. Uh, Same year, he did a TV movie that was extremely popular called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Then in 77, he did Saturday Night Fever. In 78, he did Grease. He was doing Welcome Back, Cotter during those years, 75 to 79. Then in 80, he did Urban Cowboy, and in 81, he did Blowout, and 83, he did Staying Alive. Like, that dude was... He turned down American Gigolo to do Blowout. Yeah. That dude was on fire at the time. Until the 80s. Yes. Yes. Jakey, underrated 80s pick for you, sir. Uh, My pick for underrated 80s is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors is great. Which I think you could make... I mean, here's the deal... My heart is always going to be with the original Nightmare. There's just, I mean, it's, it it's, it's, it's hard to say that that's not the best one. But Freddy Krueger, as you know him within the realm of pop culture, was not born from the original Nightmare on Elm Street. He was born from Nightmare on Elm Street 3. That's mm. where he oh, becomes yeah. mm-hmm. the Freddy Krueger that you know and love. Um, but it also is sort of this great... Kind of what I'd imagine something like New Mutants is going to be because this is almost this like X-Men of kids who are kind of trapped in this psychiatric institute because they're all having these issues with Freddy in their dreams and all their parents think that they're crazy. So they send them to this psychiatric institute and each of them have their own personal inner flaw, which ends up being the power that they use to take on Freddy. Um, and it's also from a script written by two guys who know how to tell a story, Wes Craven and Frank Darabont. Nice. So, and that's, Darabont wrote that? Wow. Darabont and Wes Craven wrote no it. no idea. And uh, you, see the re- you see the return of, of Nancy, and it's great to see. It's a gr- great return on that character. Uh, a fun cameo from uh, Johnny Depp. He returns briefly in it. A lot of really striking visuals. There's one scene in particular um, that that now people argue is it has not quite aged well, but it's really where the Nightmare series began to take shape in terms of what people know it is today. Because if you know Freddy from a little from from how big of a character he is in pop culture, and then you see the original Nightmare, you go, well, that doesn't really seem like the guy that I've seen and everything else. That that was whole that was all born in uh, Dream Warriors, which is truly truly incredible. It came out in '87. Um, easily, easily, easily the best sequel and as good of a Freddy Krueger movie as you're going to get short of of the original. Um, I, I think if you take your the nostalgia and your heart out of it, you could make a very solid argument that it's actually the best nightmare film. But I think my heart is just too too in, uh, too close to the original film to to call it the uh, uh, not the best one. So. Jake, do you Jake, do you pick. still think that as much as you love three, do you still think one has the best death? I think Depp's death when in one when is, Depp's when Depp's sucked you know, into the that is one the of the bed. most terrifying. Like, I, I I think the the girlfriend in the first act where they where they had to build where they basically he he inceptioned before it was inception where he had to build yeah. the room that turned and the girl is. Is is, yeah. is being murdered as she's going up on the roof that they end oh. up blaming the boyfriend for. 
I think that's brutal because imagine imagine you're the boyfriend in that scenario. Okay, you know, but man, wait. You know, you know what scared me the most about those movies though is like when somebody would get killed like that and there was no explanation that the person could say to to prove their innocence because there's nothing you could do yeah. because how do you how do you prove that the yeah. that this guy did this in her sleep and i think to me those are some of the most terrifying things in a horror film is when you put a blame on a character that has no way of proving themselves that they did yeah. nothing wrong that's so freaking scary to me that's almost scarier than the death itself i think there's a um, death in dream warriors if i can remember it correctly um that still disturbs me to this day where freddie no, Freddie does somebody like a pu- like a puppet, like a marionette. Mm, yeah, and her arms and her legs are sticking out, and her veins come out of her arms and her feet, yeah. and those become the strings that Freddie walks her along like a puppet. Yeah. And it's a very realistic effect. Yeah, because at the time, I mean, it's the eighty, so it's still practical effects. The, the death yeah. that always disturbed me, and it's really it's a disturbing image, is that there is a character who is uh, a heroin addict in the film, mm. and his. Uh, Fingers where the used to be knives become syringes, oh. and she has the sores that turn into these gaping mouths that are essentially yes. begging for oh. the drug. It's it's such a it's really a disturbing and film. She injects you, all the heroin needles into yeah, her. If arm. you haven't seen Dream Warriors, it's Dream Warriors is a great great it's horror so film. Speaking of syringes, Lee Winnell did uh, offer his apologies for the syringe scene in Saw Two when they have to dive into a ah. pit of hypodermic needles. Um, which is our, one of the most horrifying death scenes I've ever seen in my it's life. Really funny. You imagine really having funny. to dive into a hypodermic needle uh, yeah. pool to find a key? Like, you're just like digging through it. Oh my god! Yeah, come right. on, man. You guys went with uh, serious picks. Mine is a little bit goofy, um, but goofy in, in the best way possible. I went with Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Um, oh, oh, oh great movie! Now uh, underrated. Do you guys think it counts as underrated? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I I'd, I'd call it underrated. It's uh, underrated for the '80s. Because yes. the 80s has so many big movies that that's, that falls under the radar for sure. So I took it down off the shelf and I revisited it because, A, I love it. I love everything about it. And what it struck me, I hadn't even realized, it's very much what Dolomite is now. It's it's a ton of things that the director just loved and he stuck them all together. There's a an El DeBarge music video in the middle of it because the girl is a DJ at the club. Um, there's Kung Fu all through it. Like when I when and Dolomite when Rudy Ray Moore is like, I like Kung Fu. I'm gonna put Kung Fu in this movie. Chop me um, a mother. It's R and B. You know, just thrown thrown in. It's uh it's like sassy kids from a New York City neighborhood um, who love going to Kung Fu movies. And it's one of the most memorable villains uh, you'll ever see in Shonuff, the Shogun of Harlem. Um, and it's about this guy named Leroy, who they call Bruce Leroy. It's mildly racist. Like, it makes these little jokes throughout it. Like, uh, Leroy's father is a black man who owns a pizza store in New York, and he gets a lot of flack because they say no one ever is ever going to eat at a black man's pizza place. Uh, they call Leroy Bruce Leroy, which cracks me up. And they're all trying to get the glow, which is a really bad 80s effect where for it's like a Star Wars type thing where Leroy's is yellow and it encases his body. And when the Shogun of Harlem gets it, he turns red like a Sith and they can kind of like shoot uh, stuff from their fingertips. And when they battle, it looks like a Star Wars battle. It's all of these genres just mashed together in this wildly entertaining film that I watched on Saturday mornings and afternoons, I think like every weekend that it was on because it was just the greatest entertainment most entertaining thing and there's a little boy in it 
who ended up being in a TV show called Sidekicks. His name is Ernie Reyes, and he was like a nine-year-old karate wizard. And I loved the scene in uh, Last Dragon where at the end, all of the gangsters show up at the club and all the karate kids finally decide, all the Leroy students decide, hey, we're going to fight back. And they're students, but they finally realize that they're good at karate. And then like this kid, Ernie Reyes, comes through and like kicks all these adults' asses. And it was like one of the most fun scenes because it was like a nine or 10-year-old kid just whipping out karate skills. And at that age, I was like, oh, I want to be that kid so bad. <laughs> so, so everything about it is amazing. Um, I think people have sort of found it through the years because of its uh, cult classic status to it. But if you haven't ever seen uh, Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, it is a great mashup of uh, 80s style, uh, 80s music, 70s kung fu type skills uh, and just a lot more attitude and humor than it deserves to have. So I'm sending people uh, in that direction. Well, I want to see that. I want to I want to rewatch that now based on what you just said. So thank you for oh, recommending that. Yeah, So much fun. The Shogun of Harlem is great. His name is Show Nuff. And when he hmm. shows up into a scene, he goes, am I the baddest? And all the people <laughs> around him have to go, Show Nuff. <laughs> am I the prettiest? Show Nuff. It's great. It's really fantastic. Uh, let's see. Next week, what are we playing? You? Oh, I'm sorry. Audience picks. I'm sorry. Audience picks. Jordan Snyder played along. He chose Death Trap, which I've actually never seen. Um, and I know he said something on Twitter about it being he's in a Knives Out mode. So is Death Trap like a murder mystery type thing? I don't know. Uh, Marcus Brown chose Once Bitten, the Jim Carrey film. Oh, fun. Oh, Jelani Williams also chose Last Dragon. Look at that. Not alone. And Kelly Ray chose Outrageous Fortune, which I think is Shelley uh, Duvall and Bette Midler, if I remember correctly. It's Bette Midler for sure, but I'm not sure. She made a movie with Danny DeVito. That was down in Beverly Hills. I'm blanking. Anyway, anyway, thank you very much for everybody's participation this week uh, for playing along. Oh, God, Gabe. Well done, sir. Well oh, is done. this our new blend game? What is it? Uh, for next week, you're going to reach out on Twitter. Wait, I know then- what it is. Yeah, it's, ha- it's hashtag bye bye Grblend, isn't it? <laughs> We're You're gonna, gonna reach do- out. Rise of Skywalker, playing uh, hashtag Ben Affleck blend. Oh. oh, and you're gonna let us know your pick via social media. Uh, Performance, uh, right? Not directing, right? Well, I don't know. Well, if I mean, want- well, wait. What? The, the, oh, well, that, there's we, a distinction. Do you make the parameters right now? No, no parameters. I thought that was the oh, whole no. thing of this game is that there's no parameters. But hold on a second. If he directed a film. Are you well, that, that well, the that's only one he directed different. that he's not in is Gone Baby Gone? Okay, so does does Gone Baby Gone count as a Ben Affleck movie? Yeah. yeah. Okay. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Cool. For sure. All right. You're just using Ben Affleck blend somehow. If you want to email us because you don't use social media, you can email us at realblend at cinemablend.com. But for most people, go to the Twitter feed and play along with us or Instagram. Gabe, we need an Instagram. No, we don't. How about a TikTok? Can we do a TikTok? He's thinking about it. All right, reviews. Uh, this one comes from K. TikTok of nothing but Kevin <laughs> doing puns. <laughs> Come on, that Bob Iger blend was a that was a sweet little detour no, for this. That week's was a good pun. Episode. That was a good pun. Uh, this is K. Laud from Australia. 
this week um, who writes in the subject line, love it, exclamation point. I just started listening as of last week after listening to the Quentin Tarantino one. I'm a massive fan of his and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood literally made me fall back in love with movies. The whole podcast explaining the setup before meeting him, the effort you guys did, how you didn't hold back what giant fans you were hooked me from start to finish. The part where you said he shouted, I expect him to give me tens and he gives me fifteens really made me smile. Such an awesome moment. Fantastic movie podcast, guys. Goes in depth, but isn't pretentious. And the banter between all of you is great. Nice work from K Laud in Australia. So thank you so much for putting that review together. Uh, I still can't believe everything we went through. Like that day in New York City to pull she, off. She's that, talking about. She's talking about the L.A. day. I guess she's talking about the L.A. Yeah. day because that's when he said that quote to yeah. us. Oh, K Laud, find the two hour. Uh, Tarantino follow-up because that is <laughs> that's a real doozy and the story about how we pulled that one off is even better than the uh, Tarantino interview I would say uh, outro where can listeners follow us you can find Jake at, at Jake's takes uh, pictures of his dog abound uh, Kevin is at at Kevin McCarthy TV and I'm at Sean underscore O'Connell obviously please drop us a review we'll try to read it on the show we'll be back next week playing hashtag Ben Affleck blend and reviewing the Way Back? Is that right? Yeah, The, the Way, Way Back, back and back. Onward both open next week. And we have an uh, interview with the uh, director of The Way Back, uh, Gavin O'Connor, which I can tease because we did it. It's in the can. So Yeah, I'm and s- he's amazing, by the way. And for people out there who are listening to our show, before you listen to that interview, if you haven't seen Warrior, see it because <laughs> it's incredible. It's obviously, incredible. yeah, it's one of the best films I've seen in the past decade. It's like, so I go good. back and revisit it often, yeah. and it's just amazing. Tom yeah. Hardy and... Uh, Joel Edgerton. Nick Nolte. I, I didn't know Nolte was based on uh, based off of uh, Gavin's father. Like there, there's a lot of things that we learned in the interview with Gavin, which you'll which you'll hear next week. But there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. He's a and the answer he gives about Miracle. Wait till you, wait till he takes you down Miracle Lane. It's awesome. So I'm gonna have to admit that um, I tried to show Warrior to Michelle and she can't watch it um, because she can't listen to Nick Nolte. The voice, His voice, yeah. The voice. It's there's something about it. It's like um, it's like a fo- a fork on a plate, you know, or one of those type things. And it is really gravelly in that movie. It's super like Nick Nolte size. <laughs> but we're like a half an hour into it, and she's like, "I gotta tap out. I can't do it." So, so uh, I'm gonna force her to watch Warrior this week to get in prepare preparation for our Gavin O'Connor interview. So, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to episode number 107 of Real Blend. We'll be back next week, and until then, Dunkirk. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.